Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Andrew Goldstein. I'm pleased to share a session from the 2019 Chief Medical Officer Summit about using an adaptive trial design for gene therapy. This was moderated by Dr. Martin Childers, CMO at Asclepios Biopharmaceutical, and featured Dr. Edward Connor of Sangamo Therapeutics and Dr. Kathleen Reap of Spark Therapeutics. The session is called Designing Clinical Trials for Gene Therapy, a Paradigm Shift. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Enjoy the podcast. So welcome, everyone. This is a uh, sort of an interactive uh, session with some experts here in the, in the gene therapy field. Uh, I'll introduce myself, and then I'll ask my, my colleagues to uh, introduce themselves. And then we have a, a series of uh, topics uh, to discuss, and then we want to leave time for y'all to uh, engage and a- ask questions. So uh, my name is Martin Childers. I serve as the chief medical officer for a, a small uh, biotech company, a startup company in uh, Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. Uh, my home is Seattle, Washington. And just out of curiosity, anyone here recently moved into industry from academics besides me? Oh, there's one person. Okay. Is that Diego? Yeah. No. Someone else. So, uh, yeah, so this is a new gig for me, so I'm really happy to talk with, uh, with these folks here because I'm I'm learning from you, even though I'm an old guy. <laughs> but uh, uh, Asclepius a Biopharmaceutical Company is a uh, AAV gene therapy uh, platform company. It's founded by uh, Jude Samalski, who originally cloned uh, AAV in 1989 or something like that. Uh, 300 patents, a very uh, broad uh, portfolio, but we're very small. We have less than 100 uh, employees. Uh, manufacturing is in Spain in San Sebastian, a nice place. And, uh, but I've been in the field for uh, two decades, and it's super exciting for me to see the incredible uh, movement in the field of uh, gene therapy, particularly with uh, AAV technology, and to see it really begin to now uh, enter into the clinic, transform lives, and, and provide a, a meaningful uh, medicine to patients that previously had no, no hope. So uh, that's my story. So, uh, Kathy, would you introduce yourself and sure. tell us you. about your company and what you do? Okay, good afternoon. I'm Kathy Reap. I'm Chief Medical Officer at Spark Therapeutics, and we are a gene therapy company based in Philadelphia. I am a Philadelphia native, and I know I am in Bosox territory, but I am so excited <laughs> about Bryce Harper. I can't tell you. And we're off to a great start, and, uh, and go Eagles, too, by the way. Anyway, uh, <laughs> there's, there, uh, come on. Philly rivalry. Okay, sorry. I see someone's still sensitive about that Super Bowl. Okay, all right. Anyway, uh, that's all I know about sports. Um, I have been in industry now for, oh gosh, 18 years. I started, uh, I was in private practice, and true story, I was recruited by a patient who one day said, hey, you want to work in industry? And I said, oh, tell me more. So I have been at big pharma, small pharma, um, uh, in clinical development, medical affairs, um, you know, leading a little R&D group, a uh, number of different uh, therapeutic areas, and I found my way to Spark about four years ago, and uh, just a really great, dynamic, busy place, and it was just really um, uh, just in terms of my development, which I don't know is one of our questions later on, just participating in the whole journey uh, with Lux Turna and getting that gene therapy approved in the U.S. and in the EU, um, 
was just tremendous. Seeing the impact on patients was really uplifting, and you know we hope to replicate that success with our hemophilia programs and and other uh, gene therapies that we're currently working on. So thank you. Great. Uh, I'm Ed Connor, uh, Chief Medical Officer at Sangamo. Everyone thinks we're an Italian company, Sangamo, <laughs> but we're Sangamo. Uh, uh, and the naming of that is, is a long, fun story uh, that I won't go into today. Uh, so I've been in the industry for 15 years, spent most of that time at Genentech. I'm an allergist immunologist by training, so did a lot of work uh, in asthma development, uh, monoclonal antibodies, and then um, got in, interested in rare disease. And that's where I think, is, as you mentioned, uh, it's just been so exciting seeing um, the gene therapy um, being available for patients with rare disease, seeing the impact it's having on their lives. Um, so Sangamo is known as that zinc finger company, um, which we are. Uh, we're a platform company uh, with zinc fingers being what the body, of course, used to identify uh, and ma uh, manipulate the genome. So essentially we, we use those zinc finger units and or zinc finger proteins um, tie them together as units, and then we can attach business ends so we can uh, use a restriction and a nuclease to create a double-stranded break in the, in the DNA, either to knock out a gene or to insert a corrected copy of a gene. We can attach a, re a repressor, and we've done allelic-specific um, repression in Huntington disease, and we recently had some tau data. Um, but all of that expertise too, we've also lever leveraged into gene therapy. Um, so we recently, just this week, announced some data on hemophilia. Uh, we have an upcoming program in February as well. Um, so uh, happy to talk about all that and more and really excited to be part of the panel. Yeah, thanks so much. And um, so that's going to lead me into uh, the first question <coughs> in regards to um, the uh, gene, you know, so gene therapy in in particular, you mentioned um, rare diseases, and you know, collectively, rare diseases really aren't rare. One out of ten Americans have a rare disease, but there are eight thousand of them. So, in fact, I read some statistics uh, recently. The NIH looked at our past performance in j just in science, and at the rate we're going, it will take. Guess how long it will take to to find meaningful treatment for every rare disease? Ten thousand years. We, we've got to speed this, this process up. So one of the ways that, that perhaps that can happen in clinical trial design is through the use of an adaptive design. And we've, you know, we hear a lot about adaptive trial designs. And particularly for, uh, for gene therapy and in rare diseases where we have very small populations, maybe even uh, minute populations. What is your, maybe I'll start with, with you, Kathy. Um, give me your, your thoughts about how you may have used, for, for example, in your, in your LCA trial. You may have used an adaptive design, or you may have at least thought about um, using some, some type of robust yet flexible trial design to accelerate the process. And I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on that. Well, I, I like to give a lot of examples, so, and, I, and I think, um, Again, you don't always need to get fancy with the design. I think we heard that today, you know, with Sage Therapeutics. I think 
We did encounter a lot of challenges in the design of this trial, which originated long before Spark was even a company at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So I think people forget about that, too. This IND was filed 10 years before we got our approval. So it was a very long development program. It was for a rare disease, an inherited retinal dystrophy that was caused by a specific genetic mutation. And, um, you know, when there's no treatments that exist, there wasn't a lot of genotyping that was being done. So patient identification was very difficult in the beginning. I mean, if you know, you're not going to spend all this money identifying what, what your gene uh, mutation is if there's nothing we can treat you with. And, and even now that we have a commercial product, that still remains a major hurdle, that we have to get these patients genotyped and identified. But as there are more trials that are ongoing, you know, there's sort of a renewed interest in that, which is great because there's something now perhaps we can offer these patients. So, um, so, the, so the patient identification, we had patients from around the world come to our two sites at Children's Hospital and at the University of Iowa. Um, we went back and forth on the choice of a control, which was also very challenging. I mean, we, in our phase one, we did one eye in one study, which was our dose finding study, and then did the contralateral eye in a second study. And we debated whether we could use one eye as a control eye and then treat the other eye. But I think what we felt was how this would be used in the real world, an ophthalmologist would treat one eye and then the other eye in, in close, not on the same day, but you know, within a week or two. So we designed around that. We had a lot, number of issues identifying our primary endpoint, which took a lot of extra work, a validation study. A lot of back and forth with the regulators, and as many of you know, sometimes the European regulators have a different opinion than the FDA, and you have to work to, um, to kind of reach a middle ground that's acceptable to both. Um, and so, you know, this, this, this was a disease where there was no treatment, and I think one of the challenges was, you know, FDA obviously wanted a placebo-controlled trial. And it's very difficult to get patients to enroll in those trials, particularly when they have a progressive degenerative disease that only is going to get worse with time. So one of the big discussions that we have, where, which I think, in retrospect, I think the FDA could be a little bit more, and, and they sort of acknowledged this off the record, was the duration of that follow-up period. We had very, of that observation period, where the controls were not treated. So every control, we randomized two to one, so two intervention to one control, so we wanted to maximize the number of participants that were being treated. The controls were uh, followed for one year of observation, doing all of the same uh, efficacy measures that the intervention subjects were doing. And then they were, at the end of one year, they were allowed to cross over and receive treatment. So there was um, that to keep them going and participating in the study. We really argued strongly this corrects a single defect in a, a single um, protein uh, deficiency in the visual cycle, and it, it's just, it just, it works. And in our phase one trial, we saw effects as early as 30 days. So we really argued to, to really limit that observational time period from three to three, we really wanted three months, we would go with six months. There's a lot of back and forth on that. We ended up with one year. So did you do that with a back and forth with Regulate, the regulators? Regulators, So yes. that is, in a sense, an adaptive design, yes. right? So you can sort of change your, your outcome measures and your timing as you're, as you're moving along. Correct. 
And it was based on very solid phase one, two data, although again, in these rare diseases, your ends are very small. So I think coming, you know, as the first gene therapy, you know, one of the first gene therapy trials, you know, perhaps an overabundance of caution, but that's the FDA's job and that's okay. And I I think, you know, now that we have that data and it's very clear, you know, perhaps we could have, but at the time, I think it it was very appropriate. So were the controls, were they blinded? Sorry, it was a bad joke. It's a <laughs> it was it was an open la- it was an open <laughs> it was an open label study because again it. pediatric patients yeah. we couldn't do sham surgery so we had a mixture of um, more subjective and more objective endpoints and there is a risk of in in uh, a gene therapy trial that the patients can develop neutralizing antibodies right so was that a considerable risk for the control groups that they might not then qualify for. For the active that, treatment arm? That's more of a concern. Yes, you're absolutely right, and you can speak to this. Uh, less of a concern with the eye. With the eye yes. It's a very small volume. It's, you know, immune protected, essentially. It was yeah. actually a very good starting point for this platform and yeah. this technology. I think hemophilia, you know, that's a, uh, you know, intravenous uh, systemic administration, and certainly, you know, it's, it's a much bigger issue there. Ed, uh, do you want to jump in? And yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's very interesting because our original hemophilia protocol was conceived as an adaptive design, and it was based off the data that you all had from your HEMB program where they had this beautiful data where the factor levels rose early, were sustained, um, and so the concept was that we wanted to achieve a dose level um, early with as minimum number of patients, and that's why I think it's so key to discuss this in gene therapy when we're using AAV serotypes. The consequence of giving someone an ineffective AAV and shutting them out from receiving other potentially beneficial therapy, I think, is something that we all really need to think um, and bring into our protocol designs. And so the thought was to expose as few patients as possible and get to a therapeutic dose um, as, as soon as possible so that, um, so that we were able to, A, get to proof of concept faster, but B, make sure the patients are getting um, within a therapeutic range. But it's interesting because right on the heels of that, the Bimarin data came out where that vector seemed, at least in hemophilia, to be behaving differently, where um, the factor expression was rising later it was peaking. Um, it was peaking higher, and so that really caused us to rethink our adaptive design. Because ideally, um, you would want, as we all know, for adaptive design, to have a biomarker that's consequential to the patient that you can read out very quickly and that you can make um, a decision on. But we use a different vector. We use AV6. So even though the non-human primate data told us that seems to come up early, we didn't know that. Um, And so we actually, because we didn't know the kinetics of what the expression would look like, we went to a more standard, um, you know, single ascending dose study. Uh, And, and uh, it was, it was interesting because, as I say, our adaptive design was informed by the data as it was coming out on other programs. And the safest thing to do um, in in my view and, and in the company's view was to, to do a more standard approach because we needed to follow those factor levels over time to understand how quickly they would rise 
and then what level they would actually achieve because we didn't want to overshoot. So, so this was happening in, in, in real time, and did, did you have um, fast-track designations so you could have iterative meetings with the regulators, or how did that work? Yeah, those, those came later. I mean, I would say our interactions with the FDA were phenomenal. I mean, they were really, and I think that's true across the gene therapy landscape, is we're all sort of learning together, both from a delivery standpoint from you know what what the cdna construct looks like um they've been phenomenal both for that as well as our uh, gene editing programs so the the back and f if there is such thing as back and forth with the regulators the communication was a was a key issue there it was and and you know unlike i mean when i was developing monoclonal antibodies particularly in asthma where there's a very specific set of rules and you must do this and you must do that it was much more of an opportunity for us to bring our questions to them and have it was i don't want to call it like a fireside chat but it was really much more of a hey here are some of the things that we're struggling with do you have any thoughts mm -hmm. and i it was it was really uh terrific being able to discuss those with them so so the role of communication if i can kind of move into another sure. topic here uh, very important with regulators but also we've al already heard this morning about the role of uh, communication the CMO has with uh, senior leadership, board members, CEO. What, what are your thoughts about and, and your experience with that? I'm, I'm sort of in the midst of that myself, so I'd like to hear your sage advice, uh, both from you and Kathy, about communicating with your board and your CMO, especially about when you are uh, championing something that may be going a little bit upstream against what, what leadership would like to see. Sure. Uh, yeah, uh, a lot of thoughts about communicating with my CEO, some of which I'll share, some of which I won't. Uh, I mean, I think the main thing is an education piece, particularly if the CEO doesn't have a development background. And same with the board. It's just it's an education piece about quality, and we were talking about that during the lunch break, is making sure that, particularly in rare disease, when you're getting this data in, that you'll have the ability to file on it later, um, that you have those systems in place, you're investing in quality early. Um, but it's an education piece about what does a clinical development organization do? Why do you need two or three ClinOps people on a study that's only going to enroll 12 people and maybe only have 10 sites? And so understanding um, and educating them about, about you know, why, why do we need these people what, what um, I guess, end will they serve? And the end is if you want to get this drug approved, you really need to be focusing on quality. You need to have the systems in place up front. And so that's what I spend a lot of my time doing. And actually, we have a noontime lecture series. And I've had my operations staff come up and say, I'm a site. Why does it take me six months to get up and running if I'm really interested in your study and having educating the whole company about why that process is what it is what are the ins and outs of that um, and that's you know we're, we're a very research driven organization given our history um, but that's I think that's done a lot in terms of both educating 
our executive management team as well as the board. So did you institute this educational session? So this is a company-wide thing you do yeah. once a week at noon, for example? Well, so it started oh, off awesome. as a science lecture where it was, here's the bench research we're doing. And, you know, very clearly early on, there was a need to educate. They're seeing all these clinical operations, clinical science staff being hired, and they're wondering, what is it that these people do? <laughs> and if you... I don't know, maybe I'm a pessimist, but sometimes when you don't know what someone does, you assume that maybe they could be doing more. And so I think, uh, I think from my end, it was just helpful to have them explain what it is they did. And it's funny, we've had now folks on research who've come over into development because they were really interested in what it is that we were doing. Kathy? Yeah, the situation at Sparks a little bit different. I mean, we were spun out of, of an academic institution, so we had a large number of academic um, individuals at our company, and you know, and they keep telling me I need to hire more ClinOps people because I need more people on every study, and you know, and they want to answer every single question in every single clinical trial, and you know, um, and, and that that's not always the most efficient way to get your drug through the development process. I think in, in the CMO role is actually new at Spark. It was only created uh, last summer. Um, so uh, a, as we expanded and grew, I mean, we were very small to begin with, and there were, you know, individuals wearing quite a lot of hats and doing a lot of things um, earl in the early days. So, and, and then on the board side, uh, several of our board members were from large pharma. So their response to enrollment. You know, every you can never enroll fast enough, right? Never, you cannot get these patients in quickly enough. And I will say, having worked on, you know, four thousand patient studies, um, you know, in in all these different therapeutic areas, gene therapy and rare disease is very unique, has its own set of challenges. They're very very difficult studies to get off the ground to enroll. There, you got to find the investigators. You got to deal with the NG therapy. You have the IBC issues, and you have it's not just the IRB, and it can take a year or more to get these sites up. So, and then you have to identify the patients. And in hemophilia, where you have a very good treatment option already already available, and several other companies yeah. in the same space competing for the same patients, it can be really really challenging. So, you know the knee jerk response of the folks in big pharma is, well, just add more sites. You know, you need more pay, add more sites. Well, that's not going to help us now. It might help us next year, but then we're another right. year behind. So, so I think it's, again, it's an education piece. It's explaining some of those differences. And I think the other challenge is um, we don't always get lucky like we did with Heme B. But um, when you are doing these very early phase one dose escalation studies, you have limited vector. You have limited patients, uh, and you have to make a decision based on none of two patients, or three, or four, whatever the number is. It's a very small number. And to those who have spent their careers growing up in small molecules, you know, the answer is, well, I need 10 patients to make that dose decision and, you know, add more sites. So those are just some of the, the challenges. But uh, again, I think, you know, I'm sure at your company as well. It's it's very smart, driven, intellectual folks on our board and in our in our um, corporate management team. And 
what's refreshing is, you know, they, they do get the science and they pick up on this and they're very supportive. And, and sometimes you have to communicate news that may not all, always be good, in the, at least ostensibly. Well, let's say you have an, an adverse event or you have an unexpected uh, endpoint that, that's not forthcoming. But, but remember that th this is a clinical trial and this is human patient data. And so with our science hats on, that's important information. It, it's, not, it's neither good nor bad, it's, it's a data point. And, and how, do you, how do you communicate that to your board, your CEO, and what, what's, your, what's your strategy? I know you've dealt with that. And <laughs> I read the well, press reports, you know. Again, I think it's about transparency, and I think um, I think uh, the speaker this morning actually commented on this too. As you get bigger, not everybody needs to know every single data point. So that that in and of itself is challenging. It's controlling, yeah. you know, exactly. It's yeah. controlling, and then they're blacked out, and then they, you know. So it, it, back in the early days, everyone would follow every heme B patient, and they all saw the graphs. But then. You know, as we grew bigger, we had to put more um, process around that and limit that. But, you know, I think there's the recognition across all of gene therapy that, you know, this continues to evolve. There's a lot we don't know. And I think we all recognize, I, I, I mean, we all feel this very strongly at Spark. Patient safety is, is tantamount. I mean, we've all been through the whole gene therapy yep. experience. So we, we are all very attuned to that and we are not going to do anything that jeopardizes patient safety and we recognize that there are a lot of unknowns and I think if it's and everybody gets that so it may not be the data they want to see but they get that this is why it's phase one you sure. know and th and this is why you know we may need to do additional work or we may need to look at another dose but I mean it, it is a very challenging field to it's do a, development. It's a delicate balance isn't it? It is. Okay, I have one final question, then I want to sort of open, open the questions to, you know, the rest of the room here. But um, my final question is, what's your, I'll start with Ed. What's your morning routine look like? What are your personal best practices for your career, your, your life? Uh, what books do you read? Do you meditate? <laughs> uh, on tape or no? I, I do listen to a lot of podcasts. That's one of my okay. meditative things I do. Favorite, favorite I'd like podcast. to say I wake up and work out immediately, no. but that's patently false. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think, you know, as with everything, my family is the biggest source of joy in my life. Uh, I have two girls, 10 and 13. Our 13 is, goes between being surly and lovable uh, every 15 minutes um, so that's that's always an adventure every morning it's always an adventure are we going to get you know good Allison or yeah. challenging Allison um, but I think in terms of outside of work uh, I do actually like to read um, uh, historical nonfiction. so a lot of stuff about World War One and Two. I just find fascinating that that era of time another big thing is tennis um, I mentioned this mm -hmm. Right before we started, I played when I was a kid. Um, stopped playing when I was about, I don't know, f 16. And then we were on vacation six, seven years ago, and there was a tennis court outside, and the girls were doing whatever they were doing. My wife and I went out and hit, and now we're tennis-obsessed family. My wife and I captained a USTA doubles team. 
we're always shuttling between matches. Our kids now play uh, in USTA matches. It's just a, and it's a really fun family event when we're, you know, on the court playing with each other. It's 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 a great way to connect, and it's a great way for me to sort of compartmentalize and push the stress away. So t- so tennis and reading. Tennis are, are and two, reading, yeah. Are two of your yeah, best yeah. practices. One, just kind of, so what do you do when you first get up in the morning? When I first get up <laughs> in the morning, I, well, I'm, first of all, I am a very early riser, so, and I have uh, uh, people who like to email all day. So I, I do, right out of the gate, I get up, I get into work quite early, and I just start working, to be honest. There's, I wish there was some magic thing I could yeah, say that I check in, but that's yeah. that's the honest truth. So there is a gene for early risers, believe it or not? I Well, yeah. I have it, believe me. Yeah, yeah, I do too. So, Kathy, how about you? I make my bed. No, that's very important. I wish I made my bed. Sorry. And I do work out. I get up at 5 a.m. and work out. That's great. But, uh, at my house, because I don't have time to go anywhere else. And then uh, almost an empty nester. I have one kid left at home who's a junior in high school, and i got to start that whole darn college search thing again. I'm not looking forward to it now. Um, and my other two are one's graduating from college and going to get his graduate degree from Trinity in Dublin next year. And my daughter is currently in Greece doing her semester abroad, and she's a junior in college and will be working in Sydney, Australia this summer. So I want to come back in my next life as one of my children. <laughs> so... <laughs> Anyway, so they're all having a good time. They all turn out okay in the end, even though you worry about them from day one. Yeah. So You're only as happy as your least happy child. Yeah, right? so, and, and, you know, I just, I like to learn every day. I'm a, always a big learner. Um, I do crossword puzzles now because I read that helps prevent Alzheimer's, but okay. I learned ophthalmology, and I thought that would help me stave off Alzheimer's, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I do like, I, I mean, I do like the challenge, and what I... I everything I said about gene therapy, it's really challenging, but that's what makes it fun, you know, right? And I love having these discussions with the regulators, and it's really nice when, you know, they say something, and then you're like, oh, and then that triggers something, and then you say, well, what about this design? Well, and usually they say, we can't comment on that. But, uh, but no, I mean, and it's just been really, really fascinating, and now, you know, we're in hemophilia, we're, we're also looking into um, Pompe disease and CNS, approaches and you know it's just really um, and it really is meaningful work I mean I am an OBGYN by training I don't want to dismiss that and I I'm so happy there's a drug out there for postpartum depression right now but I mean I worked on a lot of birth control pills and yes they're very important Um, I was I worked a lot on getting plan B available over the counter which was very controversial at the time but you know at the end of the day that's a very well mature market it's well satisfied and you know what? You're only going to get incremental benefits from yet another birth control pill. And here, you know, the stuff that we're working on now is just so much. I mean, it's just it's, it's really transformative. Yes. So be. again, it, it's it's sort of brought some meaning back into the work that I'm doing and got me excited about um, learning. So. Fantastic. Well, thank you both. So um, we have five minutes left um, for questions. So um, we pass around a, a mic and. What can I give this mic to? Okay. Let's start. Hi, thank you. Yeah, Julie Adams, PPD Biotech. Thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to, it sounds like you both had a lot of really good back and forth with the agency. Um, 
you clearly are very passionate and I believe your counterparts at the agency are as well to see this come come forward my question is how what is your take on the pace um, of uh, drug development or gene therapy development uh, through the regulatory pa uh, pathway. Is it happening rapidly enough? Do you see that the, the pace will pick up as we become more um, comfortable with it as an industry? Uh, we saw a um, discouraging slide, unfortunately, that despite um, uh, all the changes that have happened at the FDA, drug development still is not getting any more rapid. Um, do you see gene therapy maybe being able to pick up the pace a bit? Just your thoughts. Um, yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I, I've, I've, as we talked about earlier, the, the interactions have been great. In terms of the pace, I think it's, it's, as we talked about earlier, I mean, the safety of the patient is paramount. We do need to collect that data, and we do need to understand long-term what are the consequences, um, particularly with whatever protein that we're 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 trying to express so i you know we're we are still early on it's probably a, a better question for kathy um i feel like the pace is appropriate at this point we're we're collecting the information they've turned around any requests that we've had pretty rapidly with the exception of the shutdown earlier this year when they had a huge backlog and that's understandable um so i'm relatively pleased with the pace, particularly on the gene therapy and gene editing front. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I mean, the guidances coming out on hemophilia last summer were, were key. Yeah. And there's a lot of us working in that space. There was a lot of unknowns. So to, you know, have an even playing field, and it was, well, relatively clear for an FDA guidance document about what needs to be done. But I, um, I, I think Part of what may delay this is that, that maybe, and again, I'm speculating here, is that, for instance, with if you're dealing with a rare disease or genetic condition and there's no other treatment and you have to work through the whole novel endpoint thing, you know, and the validation and get everyone to agree, and then, and then you have to debate whether what is clinically meaningful. So, you know, there's this never, and, 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 and that's valid, you know, this clinical meaningfulness component that the regulators want to see. But... That takes many different forms, and that can involve a lot of discussions. So that, you know, I don't see that changing, and I think, with the exception of hemophilia, uh, a lot of these diseases are very, very unique. So the development and the discussions that you're going to have are going to be very customized. You know, they're going to be specific to your program. And, yes, there may be some learnings that can apply broadly, that can be applied broadly, but there may not be. So I don't, I don't know what impact that will have on the William, William Scheel, I'm um, till a month ago um, leading the group at uh, Pfizer for uh, gene therapy and um, at the rare disease group, um, clinical development and operations. Um, so we have two examples where with GSK and Unicure, um, approved gene therapies have been taken off the market, not necessarily for lack of efficacy, but more for pricing um, challenges. So clearly on the tree of gene therapy, to your point that it may take 10,000 years in the current uh, pace, um, there are lower hanging fruits and higher hanging fruits. And ocular applications clearly one of the lower hanging fruits for the size of the amount of vector being used, the antibody formation, 
um, hemophilia clearly um, a little higher up the tree, and Duchenne muscular dystrophy actually um, pretty, uh, pretty far up. Um, in order to pose my question in the frame of this um, topic, designing clinical trials, can you say something around whether, not necessarily the level of pricing, yeah. but the structure of pricing ties into your clinical trial design? And if you don't have an answer to that, can you still say something around well, what, pricing? What? <laughs> I, can't, I can't speak numbers, but you, you raise a very, very important point, and I think it's not about price, it's about value. Okay, so you actually have to deal when you're designing these trials, and for some conditions it's easier than others, right? But you have to create value for the regulators, clinical meaningfulness, demonstration of efficacy, that's how they're judging value. You have to create value for the patients, and you know, and, and that's where patient, the patient advocacy groups come in. If you're designing your own endpoint, which we did, we got a lot of input from the patients, from their families, from their caregivers, and you also have to create, and then there's value for your company, but that's a separate thing, you know, but you gotta create value for the payers. And for some, we, that's an issue with things like Luxturna, where there is no existing treatment, it's hard to do your pricing analysis, and a lot of the costs related to blindness are indirect costs. You know, they're not, you're gonna go to the hospital and, you know, because you fell and broke your arm. So, Something like hemophilia, where you have a treatment that has a price, you can do that health economic calculation very easily. For things like vision, um, it's a much, and, and you know what our price is, and you, you heard about the, you know, uh, the, the, the ramifications of that, but again, I mean, what price do you put on vision? And you know, you heard at our advisory committee, one of the, a, a mom who had two patients who had a different genetic defect and could not were not qualified for our trial um, she talked about she had to give up her job she had to hire drivers she had to have caretakers and there was a, she estimated that she probably lost a million dollars you know just from taking care of her children you know for 10 or 15 years or whatever it is so it is I don't know the answer to that but I think it's very critical when you are designing these trials to think about regulators patients and payers and to engage them early and often in your planning processes. And then hopefully, you may be able to have an easier time of it on the back end with the, uh, the commercial side of things. So no guarantees, but we're still figuring that out as well. Work in progress. Hi, Joe Colas uh, with Envision Pharma. Also in the Philly area, so fly equals ah, fly. Yes. Okay. Um, so the question is, um, your interaction with the FDA um, has been very collaborative in the gene therapy realm. Um, would you say that's different from your experience in other areas that you've uh, worked with the FDA in the past? Do you feel it's more collaborative because you're all figuring it out together, or is it just a mindset shift at FDA? Yeah, so I'll, uh, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, in terms of working with other divisions on monoclonal and small molecule, there is a very, I mean, there is a very prescriptive playbook, essentially, that you have to follow. There may be things that you can do um, around the edges of that where you will have interaction, but I think fundamentally the working with CBER, working um, on novel therapies where everyone's learning 
um, I've I've found the interactions there to be um, a, a, a lot more akin to a scientific advice meeting, maybe than what I've been used to with prior FDA interactions with on cedar on small molecules or. Yeah, right. I think it's the innovation. I mean, if you I have agree. a really cool, innovative product, then they—that's great. They look. They're scientists too. They want to talk about that. But I do think you know there is, you know, a lot of the there's some turnover on some of the other committees. More turnover, I think. But the the cell and gene therapy folks have been there a long yeah. time, and they're very invested, and they've been following, you know, the development of these programs, you know, since the IND. So. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the 2019 Chief Medical Officer Summit. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks, everyone.